You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Christian Bush, who is the Director of the Global Economy Program at NYU, also teaches at London School of Economics, He's the founder of two organizations, one called Leaders on Purpose and the other, the Sandbox Network, also used to head up the Innovation Lab at LSE, and is also the author of this book right here, The Serendipity Mindset, The Art and Science of Creating Good Luck. Welcome, Christian. Thank you so much for having me. Well, look, I mean, when I heard about a book with the title, The Serendipity Mindset, I could not buy it, right? I had to read this because this is something that I spend a lot of time thinking about and a lot of time talking about. And I think the book is in part about a mindset. It's in part about how to develop a way of thinking and acting, but it's also a bit about serendipity environments, right? Like how do you create an environment that is more likely to lead to serendipity as you define it. And I think you, you have a couple different definitions, but it's kind of like, I don't know, planned luck. Is, is that, uh, you know, structured luck, right? Is it a way of, you know, making sure that you're on the receiving end of a larger amount of luck than you would be if you were just leaving things completely to chance, right? So we can't confuse chance and serendipity, right? There's an element of planning. And I also think that you're trying to make some subtle distinctions between right serendipity and these other things that we always talk about, like networking and so forth. And there's an element of kind of serendipity that involves the sequence of people that you run into, but it's also about the kind of the sequence of experiences that you have and the sequence of ideas that you have. So it covers a lot of ground. So I don't even know where to start. Maybe we can start with the definition, like how did you come to think of serendipity as a coherent concept that brought together so many other frameworks and ideas? Thank you for the great summary. I feel you depicted that really well. And it's really something, the core, the gist of it is really to say, usually when we think about luck, we think about the things that just happen to us passively, right? Being born into a nice family, all that kind of stuff we can't really actively influence. It just happens to us. And that's where a lot of societal inequality comes from, right? That people just like, by none of their own volition, end up in certain places because of how they were born, where they were born, and so on. And then serendipity is really about smart luck. It's about the luck we create ourselves by how we react to the unexpected. And we'll probably talk about how we can create the positively unexpected. And so to give you an example, imagine you're in a coffee shop and you have erratic hand movements like I do. And imagine you spill coffee over someone. And, you know, that person looks at you slightly annoyedly, but you sense there might be something there. You don't know what it is. You just sense there might be something there. Now you have two options, right? Option number one, you just say, I'm so sorry. You walk outside and you think, ah, what could have happened had I spoken to the person? Option number two, you start that conversation. That person turns out to become the love of your life, your co-founder, your next supplier, your name it. The point is our reaction to the unexpected, us making the accident meaningful is how serendipity tends to happen. And if you think up to 50% of innovations, Viagra, penicillin, all these kind of things, it's usually some kind of accident, something that goes wrong, but then someone sees something in the unexpected and connects the dots towards something meaningful. And that's really what this is about, to say, how do we create more of these meaningful accidents or how do we make accidents more meaningful? So part of that is about how do you respond? How do you react to this kind of 
trigger, but part of it's also about how do you, you know, manufacture these triggers, right? You could realize that you have a choice. You could either become less clumsy or you could leave that clumsiness intact, maybe even work on your clumsiness. And then if you step back even one level further, you could say, hey, you know, I seem to wind up running into quite a few people at coffee shops, maybe in part because of my clumsiness. Maybe I should start spending more time in in, in coffee shops. It seems like the serendipity kicks in at all of those different levels of decisioning, right? About how, you know, what you can do and who you can be. Absolutely. And I think you, you hit the nail on the head there in terms of the question of how do we create more of these incidences also. I'm not suggesting we should spill more coffee on people. I guess most of the time it wouldn't go that well, but there's a lot of strategies we can all use to do that, right? So one of my favorites is, is the hook strategy. And the hook strategy is all about the idea that how do you put a couple of dots out there that other people could connect for you? There's an amazing entrepreneur in London, Oli Barrett. And if you would ask Oli this dreaded, what do you do question, right? This question that we get at every conference and wherever you go, he wouldn't just say, I'm a lecturer or I'm an entrepreneur or whatever it is. He would say something like, I'm a technology entrepreneur, recently started reading into the philosophy of science, but what I'm really excited about is playing the piano. And so what he's doing here is he's giving you three potential hooks, three potential dots where you could be like, oh my God, such a coincidence. We're hosting piano martinez. You should stop by. Oh my God, such a coincidence. My sister is teaching on the philosophy of science. You should give a guest lecture. The point is that the more we can put some kind of dots out there in every conversation, we can create that serendipity. And so I'm a big fan, you know, of doing a serendipity journal where you just write down what are two or three key curiosities I have at the moment. You know, is it to take the serendipity mindset into as many schools and organizations as one can? Is it to expand a business to Poland? Is it to whatever it is? And then seeding that into every conversation into a side note. And it's fascinating how out of the most unexpected of places, someone says, oh my God, such a coincidence. My uncle is doing exactly X, Y, Z thing. And so it's really, we can create that opportunity space with these kind of exercises that makes it more likely that serendipity will happen. So one of the themes that that I've come back to over and over again in my podcast is this kind of trade-off between exploration and exploitation. And I think, you know, one takeaway from that is that there's an optimal level of kind of inefficiency, maybe one way to think about it, right? So for instance, if, you know, if I go into the supermarket and I say, I've got, I've got these three things I got to pick up, right? Then you you just make a beeline to those products. Then it's highly unlikely that you're going to become aware of some new product that was introduced, right? Or if you go into a conversation and you say, this is what I want to get out of this conversation, right? I want to get this deal done or whatever then you're probably less likely to find out all sorts of things that could have some value. But on the other hand, if you're not focused, if you're not goal-oriented and you're just letting random particles bounce around, then you know, you're know you also going to be making mistakes. Why is it that people tend to squeeze serendipity out of their life? Is it because they're too goal-oriented or they're too, they underestimate the degree to which these unplanned things can turn out well? Yeah, it's fascinating. I've worked a lot with the executive teams and When you have a CEO going into a boardroom, you don't want to be the one saying, oh, unexpectedly this happened and then this and then this. You seem you're out of control, right? You seem you have no control whatsoever over what you're doing. So you want to portray control, right? You want to portray authority and that you know exactly what you're talking about. But in a fast-changing world, everyone in this boardroom, if you would say something like, this was the strategy, then we did exactly this and exactly that happened, everyone knows that's a lie, right? Everyone knows that along the way, probably unexpectedly an employee bumped like over some kind of new thing and then they adjusted the strategy and did it that way. And so I'm a big fan of this illustration that we always think life is linear, but actually it's a bit more like a squiggle, right? And that's the same with strategy. That's the same with when you present your CV to a new employer, you might say, I did this, then this, and then I wanted to do this and this. Yeah. Or maybe you just bumped into someone at a conference who told you about the new potential job. That's how you ended up here. And so 
that's actually what we're trying to do with this work to say, you know what, the old school leadership style tries to, in a way, legitimize this illusion of control that, that you pretend to always be in control, think that you get power by just pretending that you know everything and do everything. But actually the shift is essentially saying, no, it's not a bad thing if you cultivate serendipity. You know, I'll give you an example in a second, the potato washing machine, which is one of my favorites because it kind of illustrates that leadership style where the old school leadership style would be, I produce a washing machine. I think that people will use the washing machine for their clothes and that's it. So now if people call up and say they use it differently. I'm telling them, I have to educate you how to use your washing machine because it's in my marketing plan this way. Now, a company in China called Hire that I've been collaborating a lot with, they receive calls from farmers and the callers, or the farmers called them up and they said, you crappy washing machine is always breaking down. So they asked them, why is it breaking down? Well, we're trying to wash our potatoes in it and it doesn't seem to work. <laughs> So what would we do if we would be the old school leadership style? We would say, well, you know, don't wash your potatoes in the washing machine. We didn't construct it for that. They did the opposite. They said, you know what? That's unexpected. But there's probably a lot of farmers in China who might have a similar problem. So why don't we build in a dirt filter and make it a potato washing machine? And that's how Serendipity so that became one of their products. And I think that comes to your point, Larry, that at the end of the day, innovation has to come from all places within the company. And we have to somehow then legitimize the idea that the unexpected is not a threat to our authority but we can make it part of the plan. And that's something we just did a study with over 40 CEOs of large companies, you know, the MasterCards of the world. We sat down with them and we said, what is it that truly makes you successful? And one of the key patterns behind this is that they're extremely good at saying, here's a sense of direction. If we are MasterCard, we want to get 500 million people into the financial system who were previously unbanked. That's a sense of direction. I know now what I can connect dots to. Here's an approximate strategy how we will do that. But I'm telling you now from the beginning that we will adjust that strategy based on new ideas, new technologies and whatever comes in. Now, when I'm the CEO and some employee comes up with a new idea about a better technology to do it, I don't look weak. I look strong because I told people from the beginning that their ideas will be factored into this and so on. And I think that's how you create a good culture that you say we shift away from the unexpected being a threat to the unexpected being part of our plan. And that's essentially when we start cultivating serendipity. And Tom Lindeberger says beautifully that the CEO of Cummins, he would say, look, Cultivating serendipity is the only leadership style that works during times of uncertainty, because that's just how life unfolds. Well, do you think that part of the kind of unwillingness to embrace serendipity comes in part from hindsight bias? So in other words, when we, when we look back at the course of events, we tend to overemphasize the inevitability of it or the planned nature of it. And we forget the degree to which there was some unexpected trigger or event that led to the direction that we chose? Is it because we want to, particularly when we're successful, is it because we, you know, we, we want to take responsibility for it in some way? I think people are more willing to credit the unexpected when they fail. It's like when you succeed, you're like, well, yeah, that was the plan. But when you fail, you're like, wow, it's just this crazy comet from outer space that ca caused everything to go wrong. Exactly. And I think that's the interesting thing, right? That I think the traditional approach to luck is that it's either luck or hard work, right? Or this kind of idea that they are somehow there's a tension between that if you're a hard worker, then you created that yourself and you were in control to do that. And then luck is the kind of thing that happens. And I think, you know, what our research shows is no, like a lot of people work extremely hard to have more luck. And that's like in a way in itself than a skill set, a skill set that you're able to cultivate serendipity. And I think that's where it gets really interesting when you think about how do you build a muscle for this? So how do you when you differentiate people, I'm very happy to talk about some experiments, how we can see that. But when you train people to build a muscle for the unexpected, what happens is that then they start cultivating it. And instead of then being shy and saying, oh, this just happened to me. No, I created a culture that allows that to happen. 
And so what you're doing now is you're taking ownership unexpected in that way that you start to help frame it. And so I'm a big fan of things like in the weekly meeting, why not ask something like what surprised you last week? Very simple questions. But why are you doing this? What happens is you legitimize the idea that the unexpected is something that's fine, that's okay. And so now if someone says, it really surprised me last week when a farmer called me up and said that they use our products differently, you might say, great, make, let's make that part of our plan. You don't have this if you just have a performance review every five months and you're saying, oh, tell me now what's happened. It's also great to build it into that. But I think having that as a constant kind of iteration, what it does is it creates that kind of culture where you cultivate serendipity all the time. And then instead of saying, this just happened to me, no, we created a process. We created a culture that allows it to happen all the time. And that's a strength, not a weakness. I think you've interacted a lot with startups and also with larger, more what we call legacy companies. The whole startup ecosystem could not survive if it weren't for this cultivation of the unexpected, right? All the stories that we tell in our venture capital classes and so forth involve pivots, right? And pivots are really kind of, you know, responses to the external environment, right? Mike Tyson says your strategy only survives to get hit in the face. Startup founders, they're taught to seek out punches to the face as a way of stress testing their ideas. And in my class, I always talk about the CEO of a startup as the chief experiment officer, right? Who's running these experiments. And so the experiments are not blind experiments, kind of targeted experiments, but the experiments are designed to, to look for failures and to look for unexpected discoveries. Do you see that at some point companies that sort of goes away or disappears? Have you noticed differences between large established companies and the smaller startups in which you've I love the idea of the chief experimentation officer. It sounds like a great class. I wish I, one day I should take it. It sounds like a, a fantastic class to take. But it's fascinating because you, there's two things that came to mind when we were speaking. One is that, to your point, I think in large companies, nobody wants to be the loser who's the kind of person whose idea didn't work or who didn't make their budget work because they made one mistake and whatever that kind of thing. So what we usually do in large companies is we're trying to hide mistakes. We try to hide things that didn't work, which is a pity because that's what we learn the most from, right? To your point. And so I'm a big fan, actually, especially in large companies, but also in incubators, in enterprises, to have practices that, that avoid having this. So one of my favorites is the project funeral, where essentially the idea is that whenever something doesn't work, instead of hiding it, what we usually tend to do, right? We love to talk about successes, but not so much about the things that didn't work. Instead of hiding it, the person who's responsible for it takes it in front of other project managers across different divisions. Or in this case, it could be in an accelerator or incubator, an entrepreneur that just pivoted and said, look. This is what we learned. It just didn't work. There wasn't a market for it. There wasn't this for it. There wasn't this for it. And then instead of celebrating failure, it's absolutely not about this. It's about celebrating the learning from what didn't work. And so then essentially in this one case of a company that I've been working with, large company, multi-billion dollar business, they have this amazing window glass, great technology that doesn't reflect the light and so on. But the project manager realized, look, the market is just not big enough. So they laid it to rest, right? Proper funeral to put it to rest. And someone in the audience goes, have you considered what this would mean for solar? Have you considered if we take that technology into a solar context, how much energy that could absorb? And that's how coincidentally part of their solar division emerged. So the point here is that in larger companies, one of the kind of big shifts towards innovation again is to say, how do we have these practices that become part of our kind of trust building exercises? Because that's at the core of a lot of this. And then startups, I feel to your point, a lot of times it's intuitive, but even there, we can highlight that, celebrate the things that didn't work, but we learn from them in newsletters and wherever you are. And so it's really building that idea that experimentation, if it's not completely, to your point, uninformed experimentation, right? There's informed experimentation where you learn from mistakes and you build on it. 
And then there's uninformed, which is just naive and you just spend money. And that's the thing we obviously all want to avoid in some way or the other. But I think your point about using like a project funeral as opposed to a post-mortem, right? So when we think about a post-mortem, post-mortems happen when there's some obvious failure, right? Some obvious mistake, right? You, someone in the hospital died because they cut the wrong limb off or whatever, or the plane crashed. <laughs> Seriously, these things happen. And so they, they do these as post-mortems and the goal is to kind of go back and figure out how to fix the process so this doesn't happen again. But what you're saying is something different. It's not, maybe the goal is not to go back and fix the process, but to figure out what you can learn from the, the project that you're putting to rest. Okay. And, and maybe if you learn something really powerful from it, then you don't want it. You want to have more of these rather than fewer of these. And that's the interesting thing, right? I feel in some industries where safety is paramount and medical and nuclear reactors and, and those kind of things. I guess the key focus definitely is also on process and saying, hey, how do we make sure that we learn about the process? But to your point, it's really about the learning from it, both for what didn't work in terms of process. And then to your point, importantly, an idea that didn't work in one context might work really well in another context. And I think that's the core of this idea to say, hey, just because this window frame doesn't work as a window frame itself doesn't mean the technology is not good. It just means it might have been in the wrong context. And I think, you know, I work a lot with entrepreneurs to your point and one of the things that we talk a lot about is, look, if your idea doesn't work in one context, if you, if you develop this amazing white label technology that, you know, is focused on healthcare companies and they don't buy it, it doesn't mean it's a red, bad technology. Maybe you just take it into another sector and then start there, right? And so it's really these ideas that pivots doesn't have to be, you just throw everything away, but it's really reflecting on what is it about it that doesn't work. And I think that to me as, as kind of like an entrepreneur at heart, that's to me the most important thing. What are we talking about when we try to quote unquote teach entrepreneurship? We try to teach pattern recognition, right? We try to teach what is it about this story that could be transferable to others? If something doesn't work, what can we learn from this still so that if you're doing this now, that you can learn from this versus making all the same mistakes that person already did. And that's why we read books, right? Because we want to learn like what could work and what not. But to your point, and I think that's a big discussion I always have with my students around, there's not so much we can learn from one individual or one story because to your point, stories are edited, they are they have survivor bias, right? If you have a Bill Gates type person tell their story, that's great, but they might leave out that they were the kid of a millionaire and things like this. And so it's kind of, yes, like you can build your own startup in the garage, but if it's a garage in the Florida mansion, that's different than a garage somewhere else. And it's those things where there's so much survivor bias that I think it's always good to try to understand the pattern behind it. Okay. If five people did it in a particular type of garage, then there's maybe some merit in this garage, but whatever it is. So my point is, let's understand the pattern versus the exact story of someone. So I, I think you could probably apply the same logic to people, right? You put a pro person in front of, in charge of something and it doesn't work out, right? You don't discard the person. You figure out, okay, well, you know, maybe th this person could be redeployed into some other function, right? Based on what we learned about this person's capacities and limitations in, in that role that they were the, you know, that they were inhabiting for a period of time. You know, the interesting thing is so a lot of our research is in extreme resource constraint settings, right? So poorest of the poor, and there's not much there as you can imagine, right? And so there's this amazing organization called uh, Reconstructed Living Labs. It's a social enterprise that came out of the Cape Flats in Cape Town, and they didn't have any resources. They, it's a crime-ridden community, huge poverty. They said, okay, let's build a low-cost education methodology. You know, things like 10 steps to use social media to build your business or things like this. And then they go into other impoverished communities. And instead of asking, what do you need? So instead of asking for resources and other things, they say, what's already here and how can we make the best of it? 
there's a former drug dealer, fantastic. That person will be resourceful. They will have a lot of social capital. And if we can channel their energy towards valuable pursuits, we can turn the community around. They have a lot of respect in the local community. So if we can turn them into a teacher, the community might find it cool to now go to school and those kind of things. They look in an old garage, they see a potential training center. And that comes to your point, Gregory, that when we would just look at a former drug dealer as a former drug dealer, that's it. When we just look at an old garage as an old garage, that's it. But if we see those kind of more in those kind of moments, that's when we start to connect the dots. And they now took that kind of methodology into banks, into consultancies, where in a bank, the easy kind of way out during a pandemic is to just fire people, right? Or to just say, oh, like we got to cut costs. But maybe other ways, right? More innovative ways are to say, okay, yes, we don't need the cashier anymore because we have an ATM machine, but maybe that person could be a financial trainer. And the office that we wanted to close could be the TV studio for the financial training, right? So it's those kind of things where it's about reframing the situation away from what do you think that person is about? What do you think that situation is about? To questioning the constraints and saying, but maybe there's more than meets the eye. And that's how serendipity happens because we see a little bit more in those moments. I, I found a lot of similarities between the process you're describing and negotiations. And in fact, you reference negotiations a couple of times in, in the book. Right? I don't know. Did you teach a class on negotiations at some point? Yeah. Right? Because right, in negotiation theory, it's never zero sum, right? It's, and the only way that you're going to figure out how to create this positive sum solution is to, you know, you have to basically ask a lot of questions and you also have to offer up a lot of information. And so when you were describing the, the way in which you drop these little serendipity bombs in your conversation, right, what you're doing is you're creating multiple dimensions within that solution space, right? So if it was a negotiation, you'd think of it as like a bargaining space or a solution space. Here you're carving out like a conversation space, right? You're planting a bunch of seeds because if you go into the conversation saying, hey, I want to get money from this person, right? Then you're foreclosing maybe a dozen other things that you could potentially get out of that conversation, like an introduction or maybe some advice or maybe some education or something like that, right? Looking at every encounter as a possibility requires a little bit of effort, but also it requires, I think, what you refer to as a noticing mindset, like a capacity to notice things. Did you have any thoughts on how one and why one doesn't develop this attentional state that we think of as noticing? Because a lot of attention has been given in research lately to, to attentional states, right? And our one attentional state is to be a noticer, to see things that other people don't see. What is the cost of that, right? What are the trade-offs involved in becoming a noticer? It's interesting. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is one of my favorite experiments, which is a rather entertaining one where, you know, and I'd love to, to ask everyone, you know, in the room, our wonderful audience, if they consider themselves to be lucky or unlucky, just I know that it's usually on a continuum, but just if it were to be lucky and unlucky. And the reason I'm asking is that those of you who consider yourself to be lucky are more likely to be lucky in the future, not because of some kind of manifestation voodoo, but actually because of exactly what you just mentioned, Gregory, that once you start to expect the positively unexpected more, you start to see it more because you're more alert to it. So I'll give you one example. There's this experiment where they took people who self-identify as very lucky. So people who say, good things tend to happen to me and so on. And people who self-identify as very unlucky. So people who say, bad things tend to happen to me. I'm always in accidents and so on. We probably all know people on these kind of two extremes of the continuum. Now, they pick one of each and they say, walk down the street, go into a coffee shop, sit down, grab a coffee, and then we'll have our conversation, our interview. What they don't tell them is that there's hidden cameras along the street and inside the coffee shop. There's a five pound note, so some money right in front of the coffee shop door. 
And inside the coffee shop, there's one empty seat next to this extremely successful businessman who can make big dreams happen. Now, the lucky person walks down the street, sees the five pound note, picks it up, goes inside the shop, orders a coffee, sits next to the businessman. They have a conversation, exchange business cards, potentially an opportunity coming out of it. We don't know that part. Now, the unlucky person walks down the street, steps over the five pound note, so doesn't see it, goes inside the shop, takes the coffee, sits next to the businessman, ignores the businessman, that's it. Now, at the end of the day, they ask both people, how was your day today? And so the lucky person says, well, it was amazing. I found money in the street, made a new friend and potentially an opportunity coming out of it. The unlucky person just says, nothing really happened. And that, Gregory, I find a lot of money in the street, mostly pennies, unfortunately, so it doesn't really help my lifestyle. <laughs> right. but, but once you start to expect that it could be there, you start to look out for it. If you're the kind of person, if you take another street to work in the morning, if you're just on your smartphone, you will not see that the bookstore right next to you might be the book that you just look into the window and you might like, oh my God, that's the next podcast that I could do or whatever it is. So once you open your eyes to the unexpected, you start to see it more. And that's both kind of psychological, of course, but also it's literally neuroscience where you can frame your brain towards more. And so I'm super fascinated by this idea that once we start to expect the unexpected more, because it tends to be everywhere, but we tend to not see it, right? Most of us step over money in the street, quite literally. But once we prime ourselves to see it more, we start to see it in every conversation. So I'm a big fan of small things like when you have a conversation, think about things. Can I make one introduction? Is there one idea I can connect this to? And once we start to look out for these kind of things, our brain starts to do that automatically all the time. And so you look around, you're like, oh my God, this could be, this could be this, and it makes life very joyful. So I've always wondered whether this noticer, non-noticer spectrum was related to your ability to see opportunities and threats, right? So in other words, if you're a noticer of opportunities, are you also a noticer of threats or does that kind of come at the expense of noticing threats? If you're like Eeyore and you think of yourself as, I don't know if you get the reference, right? Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, right? He's kind of a depressed you know, animal, doesn't see the opportunities. Are they more likely to see threats, right? Or is noticing an optimism versus pessimism half full versus half empty thing? Or is it really more of an attentional state that keeps you aware of things happening in your environment? That's a great question. And you know, my wife, she is the most amazing woman out there. And she, she's the kind of person who's, who she has tons of certain, like serendipity is happening to her all the time. She's connecting the dots all the time, but she also is not the most optimistic of people. She will consider herself negative Nancy. And so, so this type of thing where she, in a way, to your point, she's extremely good at spotting both the negatively and the good and the positively good. Um, because she connects dots all the time without necessarily having optimism surrounding it. And that's what I find the most fascinating about serendipity mindset that you can almost picture it like Venn diagrams, right? If you have optimism, it makes it easier to potentially see the potentiality, right? If I can think the beauty, then I can potentially make it easier happen because I can imagine it already. And then it almost sometimes becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and those kind of things, right? Entrepreneurs do that a lot, right? Where things are not there yet, but then you imagine them and then they start to happen because you essentially work towards that. And so I think optimism can be great. And we can definitely talk about Viktor Frankl, who, who did that really well, I think, you know, essentially saying, look, if you're if you start as a realist, you end up as an impressionist. But if you start as an optimist, you end up as the real realist. And to me, that has been a very guiding frame. But on the other hand, then to your point, I think what's fascinating about a lot of people, I've seen that a lot in our research as well, people who, for example, had a tough childhood where they had threats, right? So let's say kind of aggression from people or whatever it is, they became extremely good at spotting things, right? Because they always spotted threats. And so they can see a lot of these dots everywhere, both the good and the bad, more as a function of survival, right? Because they were trained in this. And I guess one of the key things that I'm really interested in is how do we shift it then 
from a focus on just threats, right? We all do that when we cross the street, right? We all look a little bit right and left, even though there might the traffic light might be green already, red already, because we not we don't necessarily trust everyone, right, to actually not run over the light. And so if we did that with a positively unexpected, imagine how often that could happen to us because it tends to be everywhere. Yeah, there's a dark side, right? So the dark side of pattern recognition is conspiracy theorists, right? They're really good at spotting patterns. It's just that they're illusory to some degree, but they're also negative. They're usually threatening narratives that they're inhabiting. But there's another part of your book, which is really about winging it, right? And I guess winging it is the opposite of imposter syndrome. And you didn't use this term imposter syndrome, but I guess winging it is the, the belief that one, it's not so much fake it till you make it. It's really more like an acknowledgement of the reality of our limitations. It's an acknowledgement that no matter who you are, no matter how good you are, there, there's an element of of improvisation. There's an element of lack of control. There, there's an element of unpredictability in, in whatever it is that you're doing. I was wondering if you could just talk about that. And is that something that you've, did you embrace this relatively early in life, right? Was this sort of something that allowed you to achieve success early in life? Or is this something was something more of a late realization that you had? Yeah, I mean, quite a late one, actually. I grew up in Germany. We love planning. We love having everything mapped out. And then you go out in the real world and you're like, oh my God, nobody told me that there's so many things we can't really control. And so to me, that's why, in a way, you know how you're always attracted by the things that you might not necessarily have done when you were younger. And I've been very attracted to this idea of, in a way, letting go of this idea that you can control everything because that kind of like sense for perfection. Um, you know, I've reframed very much towards excellence. So say, yes, I want to search for excellence in my own life, but I don't want to search for perfection because perfection is stressful, doesn't help anyone. Uh, a lot of times, as long as it's excellent, that's all we need in a lot of different areas. And so it's really the winging it idea is really to, to say that if you speak with the CEO of whatever company, with a key politician, with doctors after the third, fourth glass of red wine, everyone will tell you, you know what, like this thing I said earlier where everyone thought I know exactly what I talked about. I had no idea. My assistant just gave me this thing. You know, this doctors, you know, when doctors sometimes when they have a complicated thing and they just say, I'll be right back. I just have to get X, Y, Z from the thing. Yeah, you're just going outside to Google it. We always think there's areas where people are extremely well-trained. Yes, of course, but a lot of times things are so complex that even them can't know, right? There's so many dynamics that you cannot know, so you got to Google it sometimes. And that's something I've learned very early on from my parents, this idea that if you give people the feeling that you have their back and that they don't, so you can, something might not work out, but that's not only, that's the, that isn't a degree of your worthiness, that's literally just that it didn't work out. Then actually it's easier to wing it, right? Because you feel, okay, if this doesn't work out, then life still continues. And one of the things, Gregory, that our research really showed around this winging versus kind of planning is that it's not about doing either extreme. Right? It's not about going all out there and trying to wing everything and then or just planning everything. It's about saying, let's plan as much as we can. Let's get all the information we can. But then also let's be truthful to how life unfolds, which is that we will not be able to plan everything. And that's OK. And I think to me that that made a big difference to really get into this informed gut feeling where what you will see with a lot of entrepreneurs, where when you start out, you have a quite naive gut feeling, fight or flight, you have you react to, oh my God, we might be bankrupt and you get like, you might run away or something like this. But what a lot of senior decision makers are extremely good at is that they have seen patterns, right? So they sense things and then their gut might tell them, yeah, this might work or might not work. And then they get more information. And so what they do is combine the gut and the brain. And that to me is then really smart winging it that you say, you know what? My gut tells me something based on an informed kind of feeling. And so I'm just now winging this, but I'll figure out why that is the case. Well, your, your academic career is something that was not 
planned out right from the get-go. What were the seminal events in your life that led you to the academic career that you have? No, it's interesting because my whole life has been around serendipity. I always felt it was just something that I do and that feels joyful, but then I've realized, wow, it's all around me. And so when I think about how I started with academia, it was literally a conversation with someone who said, look, Christian, like you, you write well, like, why don't you consider X, Y, Z? And all these things happen serendipitously. My companies happen serendipitously, how we got them to set up. So that's why I felt this content is so close to my heart, because when it becomes your life philosophy and your kind of driving force, and then you see it in your research pop up everywhere, that kind of made it interesting as a kind of science-based framework then for that as well. And the book that you were originally planning on writing was a different book, right? This book came about as a result of a conversation that you had, which led in a different direction. Absolutely. I first wanted to write a book that was a long time ago around the idea of impact organization, which was all about how do you integrate profit and purpose. And at that point, it was still seen as a hippie thing to talk about impact and it was like more for social enterprises and big business were supposed to, to make money. And so, so that was something I've always been excited about. And then at some point I went on holidays with dear friends of mine. I pitched them the idea and they, very British, said, Christian, this sounds interesting. Do you have other ideas as well? And so to me, that was the realization, okay, maybe it's not as exciting as I thought it would be as a book. And so that night I tried to figure out like, what is it that I'm really genuinely that, that I do intuitively that somehow is around me and everything else. And so... Over the whole night, I realized, oh, wow, it's actually serendipity is the one thread that brings it all together, the kind of one connection where that I'm really excited about. And so then I essentially built part of that book into that. So there's still the kind of profit and purpose element in how do we build businesses that do that, but now from a kind of serendipity perspective on it. Right. But if we move past the mindset, right, of leveraging serendipity, right, once one encounters these opportunities or insights to planning out a life where your serendipity is optimized, so to speak, right? How do you go about doing this? And of course, there's part of it is networking. Part of it is about meeting a lot of people and speaking to a lot of people and getting a lot of introductions and ideas and so forth. And it seems like that requires an element of extroversion, right? It requires an element of outgoingness that maybe some people are uncomfortable with. Is Obviously, the meeting of people is only part of it, right? There's encountering ideas in other formats, but it is a pretty big part of it. And certainly the knock on a lot of MBAs is that if you want to be a really successful MBA and do this networking thing, then you have to have an extroverted personality. If you're not extroverted, how do you embrace this? I hesitate to use the word networking, but that's what people think of it, right? No, that's a great question. I'm a closet introvert. Like I, I... And I realized that actually with a lot of community builders around me, that people always think we're so extroverted, but actually we just have spikes of extroversion when we host dinners or we're speaking. And then afterwards we're retreating and need to replenish energy and so on. And so I've always been curious about exactly that question. How do you survive as an introvert in a world that has been designed for extroverts, right? Every conference, everything, every MBA program, they are designed for extroverts, right? And what I've always found fascinating is two things. One, that a lot of serendipity, to your point, comes from quiet and calm spaces and places. So it might be reading a book and then realizing, oh my God, this could be the next venture, watching a movie. And so really, that's the kind of first, the realization that a lot of times serendipity comes from quiet and calm quiet places and we can play on this and so on. The second is really around that introverts can be extremely helpful to extroverts, right? So a lot of times you will see co-founding teams where there's the one person who's out there and, and then they like sense with introverts around some of the things they've been doing, right? So every Steve Jobs usually has a Steve Wozniak who sits there and can make sense with them and, and grounds them a little bit and so on. But then the third one, I think, which is the most interesting one is how do we also leverage extroverts for the kind of thing? So I'm a big fan, for example, when I go to a dinner party or I go to a conference, I try to find the host first. I try to find the person where I know they're the multiplier. They're the person who talks with everyone. 
And then I try to get them excited about an idea. So, right? so if I just wrote a book, I would go to them and say, hey, this is the book. I'm so excited about it. Here's a copy. And a lot of times people don't have that much to talk about, right? That much new stuff. They always talk about the same. The more senior a person, the more there's this autopilot a lot of times, right? That they then talk with each other. How's your daughter? How's your sister? How's this? How this? If they now have something new to talk about, like, hey, have you thought about, have you heard about this new mindset? Then you give them a reason to actually have some kind of new content for themselves as well. And so I found that really nice to, in a way, think about how do you like have extroverts around yourself who can, in a way, do the job for you so that you don't have to do all of it. Of course, not all of it is possible. And then last but not least, I think, Gregory, we started out with this. I think there's strategies we can all use that make it more likely that whenever we anyways have to have conversations, that those conversations are more joyful and also more serendipitous. So it could be something like the hook strategy where we, before we go to an event, think about what are three or four hooks that I want to build in when someone asks me, what do you do that I can build them in and then take it from there. It can be the way we ask questions, right? Do we just ask the, what do you do question that puts people into autopilot or do we ask, what do you enjoy doing? One simple change, but that simple change, what it does is it takes people out of the autopilot and says, oh, that's an interesting question. What I enjoy doing. And then they can take it into whatever direction they want. But the interesting thing is that it opens up that opportunity space towards something they really care about. A lot of people, unfortunately, don't care that much about their current job or things. But once we find the common denominator via these kind of more open-ended questions, that gets interesting. And I think Gary, that comes back to your point also when we talked about negotiation strategy, right? The worst negotiators are the ones who come in with a very specific ask or a very specific, I want to get 100,000 out of this conversation and this is exactly the thing. Then you're closing down all the other options. It makes it transactional. Nobody likes it. It's this icky type thing versus if you come in and you try to first understand the need of the other person, what gets them excited, then you can find the beautiful overlaps and you might go out with so much more than you thought you would because you weren't focused on that one thing that, that you wanted. And I think that's one of the key takeaways from this work that when you go to a networking event, a lot of people focus on what they can get. They focus on transactional. There's the supplier company person. So I need to pitch them so that I get this and this. Yeah, but I can guarantee you 20 other people will pitch to them. So you will be very unmemorable to them when you do that. But if you're the one person who actually was genuinely interested in them, who genuinely wanted to make conversation about something they were interested in, that's the one person they will remember after the event. And I think that's especially when you have higher ups where everyone is always kissing their behinds. If you're the one person who just genuinely was interested in them, that's the meaningful relationships that usually move the world. Those are the kind of transactional, I want this one thing happen and so on. And you hinted to this, how in conversations when you're negotiating and you ask for something specific, then it's a zero game, right? There's either I give it to you or I don't, and then we go up or down. Because if I open it up, there's so many different ways you could then complement an offer. In, in the book, there's a lot of kind of each chapter ends with a bunch of kind of exercises that you ask people to do. And I always think about exercises myself that I can do. And I think one exercise that people can do is they can audit their encounters, right? And audit the people that they spend time with and the people that they have conversations with. And you talk in the book about kind of weak ties versus strong ties. And I think there's an optimal mix of the two, right? And if you spend too much time with the folks that you spend too much time with, right? And you're having fewer and fewer of these, uh, I guess, weaker encounters, then you're less likely to encounter serendipity. We have these alumni events all the time, and oftentimes there'll be people from multiple class years. And almost inevitably, the people from class of 2015 hang out with all the people from class of 2015. And maybe it's too much to expect them to wander over to the people in the class of 2017. It's like a high school dance. But I think there, if 
first of all, people should be conscious of that, but then also people who are organizing these events. And you mentioned a couple um, techniques that you can use if you're organizing, a, say, a dinner party. And one of the things that I'll do at a dinner party is I'll have a, I've done this where I have a name tag and then in the middle of the dinner, you got to get up and move, right? So that you're not talking to the same person all night. What kinds of techniques can you do to audit your interactions? I remember LinkedIn used to have this feature, which they don't have anymore, which you could take a look at your network graph and and see how concentrated it was and see how many connectors you, you knew and were the end nodes and all that kind of stuff. And I don't think there's a good diagnostic that you can use now to figure out whether your information flows and social encounters are limiting. Yeah. It's a great question because I think from a community builder perspective, the more excuses one can give people to connect, the better, right? So if I'm organizing an alumni event for different classes of different years, what is something that gives the person from 2015 an excuse to talk with the 2017? And a lot of times that's really to your point, right? It can be something extremely simple, right? Like just some kind of trigger that they have now a reason why they would go over there because people know it's easier to just stand with a person, but it doesn't mean it's more enjoyable. It's just the kind of initial touch point that needs to be created, right? So I'm a big fan of small things like literally just seating people at the beginning next to someone else so that they have to talk with them, but giving them an inspiring prompt, right? So something like, I don't know, what was your most joyful experience here? Or it could be everything, right? It could be related to the event or not, but it's really getting people into realizing, oh, wow, that person actually is pretty cool. And we have an excuse now to talk with each other and so on. I think more broadly in communities, I found it very useful to to get people to talk about things that they truly care about. So instead of asking at a dinner party, what do you do or the kind of professional pieces, I'm a big fan of really talking about, depending on the level of intimacy people already have, but everything from what's the challenge you face and how can we help you to anything that in a way lets people think and think, oh, I can make an introduction for you. I can do this for you because that gets people kind of thinking when everyone in a way does it, right? Because then you get inspired. And I'm always a big fan of having the first person who starts be the person who can something, like when I'm curating a dinner, I would always ask someone where I know that they have a lot to offer. And I would ask them to start first, where they would then be, oh, my challenge at the moment is this. And I'm super happy usually to provide this and this. And so everyone who comes next is, oh my God, now I should really think about that I can do something here and so on. But long story short, it depends on the kind of setting. But I think the more we can give people excuses to make connections for each other, the better. From an individual perspective, I'm a huge fan of really thinking about what is it really, As you, I mean, I now had two deathbed ex- experiences or two kind of near-death experiences. One was a car crash and then at the outset of COVID, like a kind of very severe form of it um, that, that nearly killed me. And what I found fascinating in those kind of periods, I've always been rereading Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And it's always about that question then, right? What is meaningful to us? And what I've realized is meaningful to me is meaningful connection, meaningful, like relating to others. And when you think about, I I Googled that a lot and I found a lot of kind of different kind of sources of similar kind of people who similarly resonate with this. And one of the key readings that I found most beautiful was a nurse that asked people on their deathbed, what do you regret the most? And it's always the same answers, right? I wish I had lived a life truer to myself. I wish I had more spent more time with the people I really care about and more kind of meaningful connection, those kind of things. So it's always about meaningful connection with yourself or with others. And so the very long kind of answer to a great question is really the idea of what feels authentic to me in terms of who I want to be, in terms of how do I want my, to introduce myself with the things I really care about, that I'm really curious about? How can I use that as an initial connection point? And then what are the communities where I feel I could be at home with this? Is that the kind of community, and that's the beauty of social media and things, to plug into conversations and then meet up offline? A lot of us might not be in hotspots, but we might plug into conversations online and then take them offline and vice versa. And so I'm a big fan of thinking about the kind of communities we want to be part of, because 
that is a real elevation, right? Qualitatively, yes, it's great to connect with one more person, but if you have a community where you then have that kind of multiplication, I think that's the real step change. And so I'm a big fan. That's what MBA programs have been doing really well, right? To provide that kind of community. Okay, this is 20 people now who can, but we can all do that with everything from meetup.com to uh, you name it. Right. Well, those communities, what they do well is they create trust, right? You do have these random encounters, but the random encounters occur in an environment of psychological safety where, you know, you know that the relationship has the potential to be one that's meaningful, right? You're not saying, okay, I'm going to seek out this person or that person or a person who has this characteristic or that characteristic. You have to have some serendipity, but you're doing it within the context where you know that relationship has the potential to be meaningful. How do companies do this, right? So the companies are always concerned about the ossification of information channels, the ossification of ways of thinking, and good companies will mix it up. They'll break up some channels. And can you do this in a way that's not completely random, right? How can you stimulate serendipity within an organization through encounters and through processes and through even technology? Well, I'm a, I'm a big fan of very simple things. I mean, we all know these kind of water cooler moments, right? Where the most beautiful things come, especially for younger people who might meet the boss of their boss and the big opportunity comes from. And now that kind of COVID and so have, has taken that a little bit away in, in some parts, I'm a big fan of thinking about how can we recreate that online? And so one one of my favorites is the random coffee trials. And the random coffee trials is essentially saying people across the organization sign up for a couple of times and then they get randomly matched with people across the organization for a quick coffee. And it could be an inspiring prompt. What's the challenge you face in the organization? How can we help you? Whatever it is. And then you just randomly mix them up. And so what happens is it's not only the kind of potential serendipity water cooler moment, it's also the kind of sense of belonging again, right? That you felt so disconnected because people are very connected to their organizations but always the same five, six, seven people. But, but if you can give them the feeling every time I could connect again to the friend of the friend or the boss of the boss of the boss, that kind of also gives you that excitement back that, they're, that they're, the organization itself is valuable to you. And so I think there's a lot of these kind of practices where we can essentially recreate water cooler moments for people, give them that spark back. Right, so the organizational structure is conduce, certain organizational structures are conducive to the serendipitous mindset and others are more likely to suppress that mindset. So there seems to be some endogeneity, right? The environment and the mindset. And if you're looking for that mindset, you got to seek out an environment that's going to reward that mindset, right? It's interesting because, in, you know, both contexts, and I actually find the context even more exciting where it's not there yet, but then you can recreate a whole corporate culture in some way. But so talking about, so starting maybe with the kind of competitive culture where it's very hard to do, right? And a competitive culture, it's very hard to do a project funeral, right? Because people will just look for how can I mess with this person some other way now that they know that they messed this up and, and things like this, right? So it's in a competitive culture that's tough. So I'm a big fan of the Netflix show Suits, where you have these high-powered lawyers, Harvey and Lewis, and they're like fighting to the nails and they mess with each other. But whenever it comes to their protege, Mike, then they are the best collaborators because now they have a mutual meaning. They have a mutual purpose. They need to figure something out together. And that's when they get extremely close. And so I'm always a big fan, and that's why I'm so excited about this whole idea around purpose-driven leadership, because it's really about the question of how do you rally people around something so that they genuinely care for each other? Not necessarily because they care for each other in the sense of, I love you as a deepest friend of me. No, but I, li I, I like you now because we do something that we both care about, right? And that's something where I'm a huge fan of things such as how do we create an environment where everyone talks about like purpose? 
But a lot of times it's just narrative, right? Like the CEO goes out and says, yes, we're such a purposeful company. And then you come into the office on Monday morning and you don't feel it. Right? And so I'm a big fan of thinking about every process, every system that we have, we integrate our key values that we talk about. Playfulness is a key value of ours. Great. But then we have to open our meetings with things like at the beginning, all of our ideas are bad and now start or whatever it is, but something that that manifests that value in the day-to-day. Because if it isn't manifested, people don't take it seriously and it usually backfires, right? Because then people get very cynical about it. Long story short, I think that's actually where I feel it's the most exciting to create that kind of environment that the serendipity mindset needs when you can turn a culture around because you can either as a leader create a purpose-driven environment or a lot of times it starts on the team level, right? You might be in a toxic organization where it's impossible to turn the whole organization from one day to the other. I work a lot with banks, right? And in a lot of banks, it's very tough to turn a whole organization from one day to the other. But on the team level, on the level of the five people who are in the room like every day, you can do a lot of beautiful things. And you will see in every type of organization, there will always the kind of there will always be a few teams where people are just a little bit more joyful than other teams. And they created a slightly better culture. Long story short, I think those are the most interesting ones because you can turn them around. And then in good cultures, you're right. Like it's much easier to do all the, like, those kind of things. And then I guess one one final question I'd have for you, and this flows directly from the to- topic that I spent a lot of time talking about on the podcast, which has to do with kind of the role of frameworks. And you talk a bit about kind of the kind of lattice work of theory and how one has to be comfortable, almost like framework surfing really to understand the world and you can't get too wedded to a particular framework. So if you're curating your collection of frameworks, it's like curating your experiences of serendipity, right? And you have to seek out new frameworks and you have to be willing to inhabit those frameworks in order to understand what merit they might have before you add them to to your collection. How do you, if you're a if you're a researcher, whether in academia or in corporate America, like how do you, how should you think about cultivating your garden of frameworks? Yeah, I love that question because it comes back to functional fixedness, right? The idea that when you're used to only the hammer and you need a nail in the wall, you will always look for the hammer, right? Even though you could have another heavy object that doesn't break and get in the wall with it. And unfortunately, that's why I find it always very difficult when people commit to one particular theory, for example, in academia, right? Because that in a way you, you inbuilt functional fixedness in some way because you could take some of the assumptions for granted, even though maybe those assumptions might not necessarily be uh, holding. And so I'm always a big fan, to your point, to, to really read into different theories, different approaches, different perspectives, just to understand what are the assumptions behind this. If I have a resource-based view that's all about how a company can be more competitive when they have the right resources and stuff like that, and then you realize well, that's all great, but when the unexpected happens all the time, it doesn't really matter if you have those kind of resources because you will get disrupted very differently than you thought you would be. That's when you realize, oh my God, maybe we need a serendipity-based view of the firm in that regard or whatever it is. And so it's really kind of those things where you really start to then make your own theory also better because you realize, oh, my assumption here that we always think about resources in X, Y, Z way, maybe we have to think about them completely differently because the world is very different than when they started writing that kind of theory. And so it's kind of those things where in our own lives, why I'm such a big fan of heuristics rather than very clear cut things, because heuristics in a way allow us to say, okay, like I have a sense of what this could be, but also I'm open enough to adjust whatever I'm doing to to what's coming here. And I think when you think about academia, a lot of people who made their name, right? It's easier to write five papers about the same theory because you're good at it, you dive into it, you get, you build it. But I think the real step changes come from the Leonardo da Vinci types, right? The Renaissance people who are like saying, okay, but 
in biology, we know that an ecosystem doesn't mean that you just have a couple of companies in a network. An ecosystem is much deeper than that. And so we have to really like rethink this and so on. I think that's when it gets really exciting. I think that's one of the beautiful things that's happening when a world gets more um, uncertain because you essentially can't rely only on these kind of like long-held beliefs and assumptions anymore. I would never have known that my parents wouldn't be able to visit their granddaughter in, in the US, right? Because just from one day to the other, the borders go down. We can't see these coming, these things coming, but we can revise our assumptions as these things happen. I think that's the key thing of not then, and to your point, I think a lot of conspiracies and so on come from the idea that if we don't have anchors like this anymore, where we felt we know exactly how the world works, it also can feel a little bit more uncertain, right? And we all feel free-floating, but that's why I'm so excited about building a muscle for the unexpected, because that becomes our new anchor, that whatever happens, we know that we will be okay. Now, how do you make yourself more more valuable, right? We talk about how people have to look for serendipity and go out and try to find, say, people who might provide them with some unexpected benefit. Think of it on the flip side, right? I want people when they meet me <laughs> to be like, wow, I was so glad I met that person. I want to be of service to them. But it's really hard to keep track of things, right? When somebody comes to me and says, I got this great startup, I would love to, you know, I'm looking for someone to hire. I'm looking for someone to fund me. And I'm like, I know somebody who might be able to fund you. I just can't remember who they are. I kind of wish that I had the number of contacts that I have in my current age with the, the memory that I had <laughs> 30 years ago so I could do more more matching and so forth. Do you have to, I think you have to be intentional about that. You have to really be, you have to have a system and you have to have some structure and you have to have a way of really keeping track of your serendipity, right? And keeping track of your encounters and keeping track of, so that when you do encounter someone, when you do encounter something, you have a, a way of integrating it. You have a way of leveraging it and it doesn't simply just vaporize. So that's one of these missed serendipities that you talk about in the book. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel it, it points to two really interesting things, right? One is the filter aspect in terms of for oneself. How do I learn how to filter? How do I learn to say no? How do I, I've always been a big fan of the parking lot idea that whenever something doesn't directly fit into the kind of bigger vision of the moment, then it gets on the parking lot and it's beautiful and we will get back to it, but not now. Or Pixar, when they have this kind of brain trust where whenever an idea doesn't fit at the moment, like the brain trust just briefly says, okay, that might work now or that doesn't, like just simple filters that allow us to just say okay or not so okay at the moment. But then at, at the same time, and, and I think you, you point to something really interesting, I, I faced that. So when we built that community that I was part of building, one of the key challenges was there, there was just so many people who were somehow involved and it was a kind of network decentralized organization. So if you're like at the core, you have to coordinate just a lot of people, right? And you want to make everyone right. happy and someone like me who wants to make everyone happy, it's really tough, right? And one thing that, that I learned from one of my co-founders that he did extremely well and since ever since then I've done that is to think about what are 10 to 15 people in my life who are in a way an umbrella for an area. So when I think about VC, I think about one of my friends who is always extremely open to me. So whenever someone sends me something about VC stuff, I'm like, oh, great. Hey, here's a friend of mine. He's amazing <laughs> in this. Or whenever someone talks about social pollution, hey, great, here's a friend of mine and so on. And so in a way, the beautiful thing that happens and that I only realized later, like at the beginning, you do it because you just pragmatically say, I just can't cope, mm -hmm. right? And I just have to outsource this a little bit to others. And they are actually excited because a lot of times people, VCs is a different, obviously they get a lot of requests, but in other areas, a lot of people are just extremely grateful to also be able to help out. And so I think to not underestimate that people like us, right, the beautiful thing, when you build meaningful relationships over time, people also just want to contribute to the ecosystem or the network of others. And so mm -hmm. I think there though, what I've realized is, then also the beautiful thing is that you keep 
yourself in the conversation. If I make an introduction where an entrepreneur pitches to me and says, I need an investor to build businesses in, and I say, here's my friend, Will or so, and he'll look at it, or he'll at least be able to introduce someone. And then in 10 years, they somehow work out investment that started with this introduction. Right? And so in a way, you, you also mm-hmm. stay part of these kind of conversations without having to spend the one hour on call. And I think that's the type of things that I'm really interested in. When you think about the world in terms of networks, who are the multipliers in other areas who would be happy to receive incoming kind of messages and ask, in a way, how can we then use it again? It's one of the many things. I don't feel anyone has really figured that one out. And if anyone has, please do let us know, right? I feel it sounds like you've also thought about this, but I certainly haven't found a perfect way for this. But I always like this idea of, How do you still create value even if you can't really create direct value to the person? Yeah, it's tough. But listen, there's so much in the book, right? Serendipity alchemists, serendipity bombs, right? There's so many serendipity hunters. You got to coin a whole bunch of different terms. And the book is called Serendipity Mindset. Thank you, Christian, for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.